0: Welcome, everyone. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and I'm joined by Caleb, aka Dry Apologist, and Joseph, aka LDS Philosophy. Caleb, why don't you introduce yourself first and tell us a little about your religious views and your channel for those who may not be familiar?
1: Yeah, so I'm a Roman Catholic, and my channel is Dry Apologists. I do discussions on philosophy and apologetics and just whatever I feel like, and that's pretty much it. <laughs> Uh, hi, I'm Joseph.
2: I'm a Latter-day Saint. Um, I'm a PhD student in philosophy, and I have a channel called LDS Philosophy where I talk about issues in philosophy relevant to
0: Latter-day Saints. Subscribe to their stuff, and you can start by checking out my enlightening appearances on both of their channels. Um, I think this is the first time I've had had either of you on, even though we've all spoken many times. But um, yeah, definitely check out LDS Philosophy and Dry Apologist if you're not already subscribed. So before we get to your opening statements and start comparing vices and virtues of the models of God we have in mind, we should probably outline what is meant by unlimited God and what's meant by limited or finitist God first. Um, Joseph, do you want to kick it off there? Oh, and by the way, Joseph is going to be defending the, the more limited God model and Caleb, the more unlimited God model.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, 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 this may sound like I'm being slippery today. I, I flagged this to to both Caleb and, and Emerson before today, but I, I'm not like defending a super specified model, super particular model of God, because I don't have super robust views. Actually, that's kind of related to some of my theological commitments. That's sort of thing about kind of I, I don't. I'm not super big on a priori theorizing about God, and so like I definitely am committed to a much more limited God than the kind of god that caleb is going to defend and so kind of my view is going to be largely negative right so i think that god for i do have some commitments like that god is inside space and time in some sense he has a body for instance that's so quite specific but then in terms of limits on omniscience and omnipotence i don't have really worked out i mean it, it worked out views not insofar as i haven't thought about it but insofar as there's not a lot for me to be super committed on so uh, I, I definitely think god has limits i think there are lots of the kinds of ways in which the orthodoxly conceived God is thought to be unlimited. I think don't make sense, and so I can I can have quite specific and particular arguments against the unlimited model, and I and I'll be presenting some of them today. But in terms of my actual commitments, I mean, I think God is omnipotent, but it's not going to be as big an omnipotence as on the unlimited model. I think God's omniscient, but I'm very open to open theism, although I think Caleb is as well. Um, and then yeah, things like God has a body and He's inside time. Those are the sorts of commitments. That I have in mind when I when I talk of an, a limited or finitist God, but beyond that, I don't have a really specific set of commitments, so I'll largely be arguing negatively.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, in my view, like I do think that. So, when I say that God's unlimited, I want to say that there's nothing. At least this is the best way I can, um, you know, kind of pinpoint. Is there's no external metaphysical or causal principles outside of God that are going to constrain God. Now, there could be conflicting intuitions about what counts. Certainly, I think God is limited logically. And and even some metaphysical principles, I think God could be limited. But I'm going to want to argue that those are metaphysical principles that he grounds in some way. It's not going to be something outside of him that's confining him. But again, like what counts or not, there can be different intuitions. So yeah, like I don't I'm not an open theist but i I don't think like an open theist is necessarily committed to a limited god because they can make a case that's just logically impossible for god to you know future no future free choices of creatures so i wouldn't count that necessarily as a limit so i mean certainly i'm committed to things like divine simplicity and you know all the classical um, attributes and such but i think there's flexibility on how to understand those so it does there can be different intuitions
0: but so You've both mentioned open theism. Are you guys kind of in agreement that wouldn't really count as a limitation if not knowing the future, you know, it's not a limitation if knowing the future is metaphysically impossible due to libertarian free will, you know, for example?
2: I'm open to someone arguing that, I I, I we'll probably get into this later, the notion of limit is somewhat obscure to me, and it seems like it's not like a robust metaphysical category. It's really just different ways of speaking about things. And so I think it would be totally reasonable to call not being able to know the future a limit, even on the open theist view, in the same way that God being unable to do the logically impossible is a kind of limit. It is I certainly, I think, a reasonable way in which you can talk about that as being a limit. On the other hand, I think it also makes sense, what kind of what Caleb has already suggested, that they're, kind of, they're somehow different than other kinds of limits, right, in both the case of open theism and God not being able to do the logically impossible. I think. It's not unreasonable to kind of distinguish those. But on the other hand, I don't I don't want to be super super hard on the idea that this that limits are these kind of things out there in the world as opposed to things that we just kind of different ways of describing things.
0: So Caleb, do you think that God can do anything logically possible? You mentioned some possible metaphysical limitations as well. So I mean, if you were trying to give an analysis of omnipotence, would you say, Oh, God can do anything logically possible and here are some further constraints, or would you start off saying God can only do everything that's metaphysically possible?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that it just depends. And it's kind of case by case. I mean, if something's clearly logically contradictory, then it's. I think it's absurd to think God could do that. But I mean, if somebody could make a case that it's more of a metaphysical limitation, like I don't think God could take himself out of existence. But you know, an argument could be made, well, that seems logically possible. But it's like, yeah, but if he's a necessary being, but you know, is that a logical impossibility? Is that a metaphysical impossibility? It's not entirely clear. So generally, I want to say, yeah, it's logical limitations. But if somebody can make a plausible case that like, no, this is actually a metaphysical limitation. And it's like, yeah, that does seem like something God couldn't do. Like, I don't think God can change in the past. Is that a logical limitation? Is that a metaphysical limitation? Kind of depends upon what you want to call it. But it just depends. Like, That's why I think it's more case by case, but I don't want to say there's something outside like I don't want to think like if it seems plausible that God could be less limited than that without running into some absurdity, then I want to say he's he doesn't have that limit. So that's where I don't think open theism is a limit necessarily, but if there's a coherent way that God can know the future, then I want to grant that power to God. So it is kind of case by case, but I want to give as little little of limits as possible just
0: for reasons of simplicity
1: well just reasons i think it's just the proper conception of god so i guess when we get into the arguments in a moment of like why i think like i think we're thinking of god as a necessary ultimate being that it's going to plausibly follow that he should be unlimited
0: okay well joseph where do you come down on that i mean do you have like a short analysis of omnipotence that you could toss out like oh he can do everything that's physically possible metaphysically possible
2: Yeah, I definitely want to say God can do whatever is physically possible. Beyond that, I have worries about the notion of metaphysical possibility. Certainly God can't do everything that's logically possible, or at least it seems... I mean, you know, I think as a Latter-day Saint, if it were revealed or we had good reason to think that there are things which are possible that God can't do, it would actually be fairly easy for us to accept that. I think Latter-day Saints generally want to say God's omnipotent, but it wouldn't be uh, earth-shattering religion giving up if it turned out that God can't do everything that's possible in some philosophical sense of possible. On the other hand, I think we do want to say he's omnipotent. But then there are things like, it looks like God can't create ex nihilo on the last day conception. Certainly, he didn't do that. And so that, that's quite a strong limit. And so that looks, it's not logical. So it looks like there are metaphysically possible things maybe that he can't do, unless you think there's something conceptually confused about creation ex nihilo. And so I think it, you know, the most plausible candidate for if you want to commit to omnipotence the of the last conception, the most plausible candidate for the kind of possibility. That, that would be the kind of actual possibility would be physical. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I was actually wondering that if okay, is it just that God didn't create ex nihilo or could he actually not do that? So it sounds like you think, yeah, he didn't create ex nihilo and probably he couldn't.
2: Yeah, I mean again, like maybe a Latter day Saint could say, no, he could create nihilo, he just didn't. Uh we have a kind of a fairly long tradition of Latter-day Saint philosophers saying he couldn't but I think as far as scriptural commitments or revelatory commitments, all, all that really is, is God didn't create ex nihilo and everything that exists, exists eternally. But I guess maybe that doesn't by itself rule out the possibility that God creates out of nothing. I just think that that's probably not super amenable to the kind of conception of God that we tend to have. And so it's more likely to say God couldn't create ex nihilo.
0: Is that because of some limitation on God or because there's something just inherently confused about creation ex nihilo?
2: I don't, it doesn't seem like conceptually confused to me. You probably could make that argument, but I don't think there's anything. And the fact that has been made by the last philosophers like Pali and Orson Pratt, but uh, yeah, I don't think there's anything like wrong. I think I can conceive of creation. Although I actually, I do think I can conceive of, I, I don't follow Kripke, for instance, in saying that there are things which are, uh, impossible and therefore inconceivable like water not being h2o i think i can conceive of water not being h2o even the water is necessarily h2o so that doesn't g- guarantee possibility i think i'm not super rationalist about modality and so i'm happy to say there are all kinds of our posteriori necessities and perhaps creation ex nihilo is impossible but we couldn't know that a priori
0: so you've both mentioned that you know god is uh you know limited in some sense by logical possibility like i think c.s lewis Said at one point something like God can't do nonsense, and I feel like that's you know pretty reasonable. Um, so in a very broad sense, you know everybody except Descartes and Martin Luther thinks God is limited in some sense. Um, he's at least limited by logical possibility, and that seems fine. So limitations come on this continuum. You know they're not binary. It's a continuum of of limitations, and you know some of them are pretty reasonable. Like most Christians think God can't do things that are logically impossible. But historically, some some people have so, yeah. I mean, some limitations we're already fine with. And just the other point I wanted to make is that omnipotence is not necessarily the same thing as being unlimited in power. So, like, you can believe in a limited God and just have a different analysis of omnipotence. Just like in the same way that uh, you could still think God is omnipotent even though He can't do uh, things that are logically impossible. So, like, I think Descartes and Alvin Plantinga both believe in an omnipotent God, even though they have very different analyses of omnipotence. So if you do believe in a limited God, like, I know some people who believe in that and they say, yeah, I don't accept the omni-God, like, I don't accept omnipotence. I know other people who, like you mentioned, Latter-day Saints, who say, no, God is omnipotent and they just have a different analysis of omnipotence. But yeah, I just wanted to flag that so some of our listeners who are Christians are not just all you know automatically on one side of this because they think well I'm a Christian I have to believe in an omnipotent god like if you feel that way well you can still believe in an omnipotent god and just have a different analysis of omnipotence i just want people to come to this with a little bit more of an open mind than they might otherwise come to it so um with that i think we can move into opening statements do you guys have a preference for who kicks it off since
2: i'm making In my opening statement a more or less negative case really i'm just arguing for limits by saying that certain ways of being unlimited don't make a lot of sense it might make more sense for caleb to go first since i'm kind of responding to the kind of case he's presenting if that's cool with you caleb
1: yeah that's fine so i just have two basic arguments and they're both fairly controversial but i'm gonna just go with that so and i just want to be clear again what i mean by that God lacks limits is that there's no external metaphysical or causal principle external to God that would be constraining God. Now, obviously, people can have different intuitions about what counts. So it is very intuitional. But the first argument I want to make is that if God exists, then God is the necessary foundation of reality. Somebody could be skeptical that there is a necessary foundation of reality. But if somebody thinks that that makes sense, that that best explains things like, why there's something rather than nothing, or why there's causal laws, and I'm very sympathetic to those types of arguments, then God should be that necessary foundation, because if there is a necessary foundation, it's the most fundamental, ultimate thing that exists. And if God exists, then he should be the most fundamental, ultimate thing that exists. So they should be go hand in hand. So if there's a necessary foundation, then God should be that necessary foundation. Then premise two is that if a necessary foundation of reality exists, then the necessary foundation must be unlimited. Therefore, if God exists, then God must be unlimited. The reason why I think a necessary foundation should be unlimited is that it would be the support, it would be you know, the source or ground for the rest of reality. So really, no at least it seems plausible to me that no further power or feature should be off limits to the foundation. It should have access to all powers and features in their most unlimited form. So the necessary foundation should be unlimited unless there was something that were constraining the foundation. However, since it's the most foundational thing, there isn't going to be nothing external or more fundamental that would constrain it, nor could it pre-exist itself to then place a limit upon itself. So it seems like the only way it could be limited is if that's metaphysically necessary. It doesn't seem like it's analytically necessary, like a claim like there are no married bachelors or a triangle must have three sides. But if it's the most um, fundamental foundational aspect to all reality, it should be more fundamental than whatever metaphysical principle would constrain it. So again, there's nothing to constrain it. Um, It can't be constrained by itself or any principle outside of itself. And it should have access to all powers and features given that it's foundational to everything else. So it seems very plausible to me that if a necessary foundation exists, It should be unlimited, and God, if God exists, then God should be that necessary foundation. Therefore, God should be unlimited. So that's kind of my a priori argument for why God should be unlimited. My second argument's more of a pragmatic argument. This is going to appeal to people that have this theological conviction that we should have hope and confidence that God can end suffering. So somebody might make a case that a limited God can better account for suffering because we can argue that God, you know, doesn't end suffering because he's not able to. But I would argue that this is going to perhaps limit God too much, that he's going to be relegated to not being able to have much influence, if any, within the universe. It's not clear if God can't end suffering, what God is able to do. But also, I think it strips away our confidence that God can end suffering. So if somebody finds um, That's a commitment that we shouldn't give up, that God will be able to alter the universe and end suffering. Then we should be committed to the claim that God is unlimited because an unlimited God, we can have confidence we'll be able to end suffering. While with a limited conception of God, I don't think we can have that confidence. And if one makes the argument that a limited God is better able to explain why there is suffering, it's unclear that any sort of defense or theodicy is going to be off limits for an unlimited God. Unless they're going to argue that a limited God just literally just can't end suffering, but then I think we're going to relegate God to being too powerless, that it's unclear, like what kind of confidence we can have in God, what God is able to do within the universe. So overall, I think a limited God is able to give us more hope and confidence. So all things being equal, I mean, that's going to be points for the unlimited conception. So those are both of my arguments. Hopefully that made sense. Yeah, great. Thank you.
2: Um, my. Arguments. I mean, I, I, I have kind of a cluster of closely related worries about this conception of God. So, Caleb and I previously had a debate on divine simplicity, which, uh, in his kind of written case uh, for this uh, this kind of a priori argument for limits, uh, he kind of mentions that simplicity might come out of this. And so, I so I have worries about divine simplicity, but also some kind of other notions in this God. That, so, you you know, out of this this arg- a priori argument, you're meant to get something like the Orthodox Catholic conception of gods, so you also have things like timelessness that are built in here and aseity. And so I have a cluster of worries about this kind of conception, but I've kind of divided it up into three arguments uh, against something like this conception. And there's lots for us to say after <laughs> that I won't get into in this opening statement, but I'll start with kind of, can this God be personal, right? So we've got this necessary foundation for reality in some sense, right? Maybe for causality or for just contingent existence. And and you know, I, I, want to, I want to challenge the notion that this the kind of God that you get out of this picture could be personal, which again is a commitment of orthodox conceptions of God. So, Peter Strauss and an individual's kind of famously uh, said that a person is is roughly something to which we can ascribe both mental and physical predicates, and that's I think obviously wrong, right? Uh, for instance, uh, Harry Frankfurt in Freedom of the Will and the concept of a person points out that we can say that of animals, we don't count animals as persons, but Frankfurt has this alternate conception of a person as being something, or, you know, I mean someone, but something that has a certain structure of the will, right? So you have kind of second order desires, and he, he explains why that's really built into our concept of a person. I think that's a very plausible, at least necessary, or roughly necessary condition for what a person is. But I'm I'm super open <laughs> to alternate conceptions of what personhood is. I'm not, Big on necessary and sufficient conditions generally in philosophy. uh, I don't like analyticity, and so I'm happy to say we don't have necessary and sufficient conditions. But it seems like something like Frankfurt's conception is really, really quite important to our conception of a person. And so, you know, can God, for instance, have second-order desires? Well, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm making a particular set of. Points about Frankfurt's conception. I'm open again to other conceptions of personhood, but I think that any plausible conception of personhood that starts with our ordinary notion of personhood is going to really struggle to, to extend to God. So, in this, in this second-order desires conception of persons that Frankfurt suggests, you know, in what sense then is God a person? Can God have desires? Well, outside of being God, God being outside of time, I don't know what it is to have a desire that's timeless. And I certainly don't know what it is to have a desire if you're simple, right? So like, it seems like for us, a desire is something like a mental state, um, something that is contributes to my overall kind of set of cognitive processes. And a God outside of time that's simple and our say doesn't seem to be able to have any cognitive processes at all, and so, or, or mental states, because it can't be distinguished from God as a, an object or a being. And so I, I have no conception then of what it is for God to have desires and therefore for God to be a person. And again, if you want to suggest some alternative conception of what a person is, uh, that's fine. I But yeah, I, I can't work out in what sense God is a person given commitments to things like simplicity and timelessness and immutability, that sort of thing. So that's that's kind of one problem. It's, can God be a person? It's not clear to me in what sense God would be a person. And I'll say something in a moment about in the, in the next argument about kind of why I think exactly that that sort of objection is a good one. So my second Uh, argument is to do with a claim like that God can love. So if I'm said to love my wife, which I do, uh, there are certain characteristics or features of me that are meant to be constitutive of my love for my wife. And so if we imagine a counterfactual situation in which my wife doesn't exist and never existed, there are going to be things that are different about me, right? And if they weren't different about me in that counterfactual, I think it would be very plausible to say I didn't love my wife. If she didn't affect me in some way, she didn't have an impact on me, then I didn't love her, right? And so if God is our say, and if he freely chose to create, which many Christians want to say, although maybe Caleb, maybe you're not committed to that. Uh, if he freely created, then he could have chosen not to. The existence of things is contingent. But if the existence of things is contingent and God's totally our say, he's not affected by creation, then in the two worlds, one in which he didn't create, and one in which he did, there's nothing different about God. Well, it looks like that's just not love, right? Or caring about us, for instance. So it's not in the ordinary sense. So I, I, we talked about this in our other debate, Caleb. But kind of, you might have to go through like something like analogy, or uh, you know, kind of engineer a concept of of love or care that is able to apply to God as well. But it certainly isn't our ordinary concept of love. It can't be because God doesn't seem to meet the criteria for something like that. And so the reason I think this is a good kind of argument is because this is how philosophy often proceeds so you think about like gettier cases right so okay so it was often for a long time it was thought knowledge is justified true belief gettier comes along and writes a short little paper and says well actually it looks like there are cases of justified true belief that aren't knowledge so uh i think what is one of the cases like uh, you go to a job interview and uh, you know that this so other guy is the favorite and that he has coins in his pocket and you so you think the person who is going to get the job has 10 coins in his pocket, unbeknownst to you, you have t- 10 coins in your pocket and you're going to get the job, you know, so you have justified true belief that the person who's going to get the job has 10 coins in his pocket, but it turns out you didn't, you weren't thinking about it in the right way. It looks like something missing there. Anyway, that I, I should have used a different example. That's not the best one. Yeah. The,
0: I feel like the stopped clock example from Bertrand Russell yeah. is clearer than the- Yeah.
2: Right, right. Oh yeah. So like, it's you know, it's, it's three o'clock. You see a clock that says three o'clock. You have justification for believing it's three o'clock but actually it turns out that clock is broken. It's stuck at three o'clock. You just happen to look at it at the right time. So, you know, it, you know, it, it, many people agree based on looking at those cases, maybe using an intuition uh, it's, you have justified true belief and yet you didn't have knowledge in that case. And so therefore knowledge can't just be justified true belief, right? That's the kind of argument. And so the reason that's a good argument is because we, you know, it, it would be a bad response to say, well, I like the justified true belief analysis because it's nice and neat. So like a, maybe a pragmatic motivation for keeping it. And so I'm going to ignore cases like that. I'm going to actually just kind of explicate in carnap kind of sense the concept, right? So I'm going to like engineer it, tidy it up, and now I'm going to stick with this concept and I don't, I don't have to worry about those cases. We don't think that's a good kind of response because we tend to think that what philosophers are doing, more or less, this I mean this this is what there are actually I think kind of two concepts of what philosophers are doing. But one is we're basically just analyzing ordinary concepts. And if there are ordinary ways of using the term that don't apply to the philosophical conception, it's a bad analysis, and we need to come up with a better one, right? And now the kind of the other way of doing philosophy is something like maybe the churchlands do, right? So like science says this, our ordinary concepts are therefore not very good and should be given up, right? That's the the explication route. And so my, my claim is that saying something like God can love almost commits you to the explication, the kind of churchland route, but instead of saying science says this, therefore, it's something like revelation or metaphysical principles say this and therefore. And so you have to change the concept. You can't just apply our ordinary concept of love to God. Or of personhood to god you have to come up with a new one and the worry of course from someone who, li- who like who likes the kind of gettier style approach to philosophy is that you're changing the subject right if, if you were just to say i like knowledge asterisk and that's just justified true belief and i'm gonna stick with that you know The person who is interested in, in the Gettier cases and thinks they're compelling uh, kind of refutations of the justified true b- belief approach, are going to say, well, you're not talking about knowledge anymore. I want us to talk about actual knowledge. I don't care if you come up with some engineered concept. That's changing the subject. It's irrelevant to the actual knowledge because actual knowledge doesn't work in the way the justified true belief analysis alleges. Right. So that's, that's kind of why I think this kind of challenge to the conception of God is uh, an important one. And again, that's not to say that you can't do the explication kind of philosophy. I think you've got to justify it and say why it's not changing the subject if you're going to do that. Um, okay, and then just quickly, my last kind of point is, again, very closely related. I mean, just kind of God and language and thought and cognitive processes. So I think when we talk about things like meaning uh, in, in you know, like semantic meaning or intentionality representation, we, we think we have these representational mental states, something like a belief, right? So if I believe that um, Emerson is in the Eastern time zone, that's a belief about Emerson, uh, you know, that belief represents or is about Emerson, so it's an intentional state. And that you know, we think that's really important to the way that things refer, thoughts and words. And so, the how how does that work for God? I, I, just, I just have no. So you know, I, and one reason that we it seems like we have to say that he does because we think God reveals things, right? So if he reveals a bit of scripture or something, it looks like those things that he's revealed are about things. Or we also want to say like God cares about me. Well, that's intentional, right? That's an intentional state we would say ordinarily. So how does that work for God? I, I don't know what it would be for God to be able to do that if God is our say. So, uh, how could God wanting me to be the best that I can be, be about me if I can't causally affect God or if God's simple, how can he have mental states or beliefs or anything like that? Propositional attitudes, anything in that vicinity about me or about Emerson, if he's simple and outside time and our say, all the ways that we have, all the resources we have for thinking about things like beliefs, and representation and intentionality involve things that we can't talk about in God, because he's simple and timeless and immutable and our and all these other things. And so then I have no idea <laughs> what it means for God to, be, uh, to have cognitive processes and therefore to be a person, for instance. But just even to, to, to all the sorts of ordinary Christian, not even philosophical things, ways of talking about God. God loves me. God cares about me. God wants me the best that I can be. I don't know how to make sense of any of that, because all of those things involve notions, quite essentially. That it doesn't seem like we can apply to God very easily. So then again, that kind of comes back to the ordinary slash, uh, you know, ordinary anal- conceptual analysis or conceptual uh, engineering slash explication approach. It seems like the ordinary ways are just not are just not going to work. And then I don't I I have worries that we're going to be able to get a, an engineered concept that that is good <laughs> and it can apply to God. So yeah. So just to review, you know it looks like God can't be a person given certain commitments the way God is. It doesn't make sense to say things like God can love or cares about me. or wants me the best that I can be. And then I don't know how to make sense of God's aboutness, intentionality in God. It just seems really puzzling on, on this kind of conception of God where you're committed to things like I said, simplicity, immutability, and timelessness. And, and these, I, I don't take these to be not arguments. I think it's to be really pressing worries for someone who's advocating for the kind of view that, that, Caleb was advocating for. So I have, you know, I have worries about the notion of limit and causality involved here as well, and uh, it's kind of this idea of like lack and limits in, in like emotions in God. But we can get into all that separately. Those are kind of the three main arguments that I'm going to present for the time
0: being. All right. Well, thank you both for those opening statements. Caleb, is there anything that you want to address before we uh, hand it back over to Joseph? There are a few questions that came up during both of your statements that I, I definitely want to touch on, but um. You know anything with regards to the simplicity you know like how could god be a person how could god be loving is there anything you want to address right away with that
1: yeah so i do think that plausibly if god is unlimited then he's simple and timeless and that's that's the conception that i hold to i don't know if it would necessarily follow like if somebody like i do think like the issue with timelessness comes down to like what or at least i think what theory of time one holds to so i think that somebody could say like time is purely relational but god is totally unlimited but time just isn't a type of constraint so you could say god is in time and still limited now i still intuitionally i still think like if god's timeless that does seem to make him seem more unlimited that's the reason why i favor that view so i do lean towards more of a eternalist view of time but but again i think it's these issues get tricky same with god being simple like to me if god is immaterial then he's simple but obviously divine, classical divine simplicity is going to sometimes commit to more than that. I'm kind of in a middle position on that, but somebody could be like a Scotus and say like, well, God could have formal distinctions and maybe that allows to, maybe that gets around Joseph's worries a little bit more. I'm kind of a moderate about divine simplicity. I'd like, I think that God does have like thought processes, um, thought like cognitive processes. I just don't think that these are parts. I just think like it's one simple action that God performs so I think with some of these issues it gets kind of murky as to like what counts as a part so like I want to say that yeah God does love us God does respond to us God does carry out thoughts I think it's all done simultaneously but I don't think he needs to have like a stage by stage like temporal uh, cognitive process I think it's all just done from one eternal now but I think he does love us and by that like he does will our good he does have um good attentions for us. So I think like that's enough to to be a loving being and to be a personal being. I think if you're a rational being, I think you're a personal being. And I think God is able to be rational because he's fully intelligent. He's aware of truths and such. So now I get Joseph's concern, like, well, is this kind of diverging too much? Like what sort of methodology are we working with? And maybe it does diverge too much for some people. I don't know. The second concern about like intentional states, to me, it's very similar. It's kind of a similar type of thing. Yeah, I want to say God has intentional states, but again, I still see a strict contradiction. So it kind of comes down to like how we parse it all out.
0: Um, I do have a question about, we probably should have mentioned this earlier, but could you quickly explain what divine simplicity and essayity is or are? yeah
1: i mean divine simplicity is just basically the commitment that god has no parts but a lot of times people defending divine simplicity want to treat a lot of things as parts that i probably wouldn't treat as parts like actions or parts or like um like transcendentals like truth and goodness and beauty like these could be parts but they can't be parts so god is actually one with all of them i'm not sure that any of those things are parts so i'm not to me it also comes kind of comes out to me like oftentimes it seems like divine simplicity is working within this kind of like platonic framework that i don't really subscribe to so i don't well i do hold the divine simplicity i don't really like defend it to mystic view of divine simplicity so in terms of god being i the way i understand is he's not affected by anything outside of himself now i think if he's an uncaused being that's in some sense true he's not caused to exist but i do think he is responding to concerns But I think these are things that he's aware of within himself. And I don't think it affects his auseity. Like if he's saying, well, I want to create a universe that's good for other beings. Somebody could make the argument like, well, then he's affected by other beings. I just wouldn't. I would say like, yeah, maybe under a really strict conception of auseity. But to me, like if he's aware of like, oh, this will affect other beings. And I have a concern that I want other beings to be happy. I'm not going to do this to me that doesn't compromise this aseity but it depends upon how strongly you want to press these doctrines
0: so simplicity and aseity follow from being unlimited i mean i assume that's why we're you know touching on this is because if you believe in an unlimited god that somehow entails aseity and simplicity
1: i mean i think it plausibly does like in a moderate sense like if god's unlimited i don't think he's going to have like these finite um parts that he's made of, because then those are going to seem to plausibly be limits. And if he's um, he's unlimited, you want to say he's not going to have these like mutable parts either. So then it's going to plausibly follow that he's all say. But again, it's like, what counts as parts? What counts as being affected? It's not entirely clear to my mind. So that's why I say it plausibly follows. And most people who are going to be committed to Assayity and simplicity are probably also going to be committed to being, god being unlimited i think god being unlimited does plausibly entail he's simple and say but i think it does depend upon what you mean by that
0: and just before i hand it back to joseph and he can question you a little bit um you mentioned that you think rationality is essential to personhood but do you i mean that seems like it's definitely not sufficient though because if you've got like a rational robot or like a rational computer or something but it's not a subjective experience you know it doesn't have feelings or thoughts or anything then i would definitely not want to call that a person so don't you think you know sort of subjectivity and experience is um an important part of being a person not just rationality
2: actually i mean just add it also seems not necessary because like infants Mm -hmm. tend to be seen as persons and even older like you know like three-year-olds i think are unambiguously persons but probably not rational at least not in the full sense
1: Right. I should have said conscious rationality. And I agree something doesn't have to be rational to be a person. But I guess when I would say when we say God is a personal being, I think mm-hmm. like the minimal claim is that he's rational and personal. Like I wouldn't say he's just personal experience, but he doesn't have rational thought. Yeah. That would seem to not qualify what people mean. But if we say, yeah, he's just like cognizing things, but he's not, he has no self awareness. Some theists do hold that view, but yeah, I wouldn't want to go. There
0: also I've, we said we wouldn't talk about this but it, do you think god has a subject of experience like he is a subject of experience or do you think he has three subjects of experience being a trinity
1: um i don't know like so i kind of tend to think it's like one experience and that the personhoods are kind of more i like the word hexity, but again it's kind of one of these mysterious terms like it's more just like a type of personality that God has but it's like one experience that these three personalities share but I mean when it comes to that I don't know I think you can make a plausible case either way
0: All right uh Joseph do you have um well I'm sure you do have questions that you want to ask Caleb
2: <laughs> Maybe maybe just one so like so yeah I this idea of God's intentionality how can God have beliefs about me So okay so I'm not sure about the idea that God can have a beliefs or desires or whatever about me. And those not count as parts. Uh, but even if I grant that, how do we individuate different ones? So you've got kind of God's one act, right? And that's kind of all timeless and all these things. God wants me to be a good person. He also wants Emerson to be a good person. How are those different wants in God individuated if he's simple and assay, Right, so simple. Obviously, I, it seems like if I, I my 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 belief that Emerson uh, has hair is different from my belief that you have hair, those are discrete, separate beliefs in me. Right. So even if they're not like parts of me, they still seem discrete and to introduce complexity. And it seems like for for us to individuate God's desires, beliefs, knowledge, whatever knowledge of me, knowledge of Emerson, knowledge of you, they have to be discrete and separate. And then you know, and then on top of that, obviously, like if God's are say. I just don't know what it is to say he has a belief about me if I'm not affecting him. It seems really central to our ordinary notions of it or like our plausible accounts of what it is to have a belief about something for it to represent the belief to represent that thing or to be intentional that it involves that thing in some way, right? And and, and I think very plausible accounts, contemporary accounts, and very widely accepted contemporary accounts, actually introduce causality there. Part of what it is for me to have a belief about Emerson is for me to be causally connected with Emerson. And obviously that's exactly what's being denied when we say that God is a say, that he has any causal connection coming from the creatures creatures to him uh, to creation, right? So so both of those things seems to, to really cast into doubt the idea that God can have beliefs, desires, etc., about me, either as individuated as for me to get about Emerson or at all, because I don't think to affect him at all, right? Those are, those are really kind of central worries I have about this kind of notion of God as simple and not saying
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I do think God thinks about different things. Like, yeah, he's aware, like I have hair. He's aware you have hair. He's aware, you know, all the different things. I just don't think that that breaks his mind up into different parts. I think it's just one thought and the thought can have a lot of different content. And I just think that only. To my mind it only compromises simplicity if God is made of parts and I don't think I'm not sure that like have being aware of a lot of different mental content like is parts like I'm more of a conceptualist about parts so like I kind of think like the only parts are material parts and like if if I think mind is immaterial and I think like one cognitive act can take in a lot of mental content and that God can still be simple but in terms of aseity like so if I'm thinking about doing something, like if I'm thinking about building a building and I'm like, oh, this could be really great for the world. I don't know that I'm necessarily affected by people outside of myself. I could just have a desire to benefit the world and I could have a desire to benefit other people. Like, even, like when God's thinking about creating the universe and I don't think that's like a temporal process, but he's just doing it. I think he's just aware of his desire to do good for other beings. Now, you could say by extension he's affected by those other beings, but to me that's kind of a more liberal notion of like being affected. Like it's not like that being is outside of God, and he's like um, being moved by some being that exists. Even it's like he's being moved by his own internal desires. Now, it is directed towards other future beings, or logic, or I shouldn't even say future, but um, Posterior um, to his own action, so he's is antecedent to them. He's he's responding to his own internal desires, but yeah. And if you, if you want to say that compromises assaity, I could I could say sure. I'm not committed to that view of assaity, but I don't I don't know that being unlimited entails assaity. So,
2: so uh, sorry. I know Emerson. I know you wanted to move on. Maybe can we do one more? Like I say something and then Caleb responds, and then we go on to I don't just because I do I still sorry I do have link break worries. So, kind of one on uh, on kind of individuation and simplicity. So do I, that's, that almost sounds like you're saying that, for instance, if you were disembodied, you do think that the mind is immaterial. So if you didn't have a body, that like with respect to having parts, your mind is actually simple. So obviously maybe not quite enough because you're still in time, that sort of thing. But it sounds like you're saying your mind would be simple in the in that respect, is that right?
1: Yeah, so I think, yeah, minds are immaterial, and minds are simple. So like, obviously, I don't think a brain is simple. And I think humans are, you know, causally connected to their brains and such. And I mean, I'm open to different views on philosophy of mind. So I'm not necessarily committed to like a strong substance dualist picture. But, but I do think it's plausible that consciousness is immaterial, and God is, you know, immaterial consciousness. So to me, that gets you to simplicity. Now, I understand that the classical consideration of simplicity might have further commitments that people want to press and i'll just be ambivalent and be like well i don't know if that's required but okay all right all right well, it seems that seems quite radical to me but i
2: mean, if that's your view of mind, then that's i guess that works so the, the other thing is just about the intentionality so uh let's imagine that i dream up a person and i want to have a belief about them and i just imagine um that uh, uh he's old and kind of balding and the president of the united states and he's a bit dotty, but, uh, you know, left-leaning, all these things. Turns out I have I have this thought that, that kind of a description matches Joe Biden very well, and I think I'm having a thought about this person. But I've never interacted with Joe Biden. I don't know anything about Joe Biden. i never interacted with anyone who is has interacted with Joe Biden. I couldn't, on, on most accounts, have a thought about Joe Biden in those circumstances because I'd have no connection with him at all. You could say I'm, I'm on a different planet. I'm an alien on a different planet. I imagine a human being, and I happen to, you know, imagine things that apply to Joe Biden and only Joe Biden. Um... Yeah. So on most accounts of intentionality, you couldn't be having that belief about Joe Biden. There are there are alternative cases which you can, but I think the plausible ones would say no. You're not having a belief about Joe Biden. You're having kind of a belief about about something that like kind of about Joe Biden. Because what's essential to its being about Joe Biden is that you have some connection to Joe Biden. That's what it seems like. It seems like the the former case, the what was sorry, the, the case in which you don't have any connection, but you imagine things about it, is what is what would have to be the case for God, right? That you, have, like, I just kind of God imagines this guy with blonde curly hair today, wearing a green button-up shirt, sitting at his desk. Uh, but it wouldn't be about me because God can't be connected to me at all. He's our say, and so he can't he can't it, his blizz sword at once, whatever, couldn't be about me. Because they don't relate to me in any way at all, if he's our say. And so that's, that's what, I guess that's my, my worry, is that on any account of what it means for, like, for, for us to even make sense of things being about things, I think it's, it seems like something like causal connection is really important to that. So if God doesn't have that, it doesn't seem like he can have thoughts, and beliefs about me at all, if they're all internal, if it comes from him internally, all these things. I just I have no idea what it means to say he thinks about me or loves me because I don't I don't seem to enter into those attitudes or whatever at all and that's yeah that's kind of my central worry about about intentionality I don't, I don't know how to make sense of it being about me if God's our say.
1: Well, so clever. I think that the in my mind the issue with our say is is God um, moved to act by other people. So like, I mean, I guess strictly speaking, I'll say like, I just take it that God doesn't depend upon anything else for his existence. So like that, I mean, that would already like, like he could be moved by other people and not depend upon them. But I think if you're thinking about like a concern, like impassibility, like is God moved to act by other people? I mean, if he creates the universe, before people exist, and he's just saying, well, he's going to do this for other people that don't yet exist, then I don't know that he's moved by those other people. He's moved by his own desires, but I don't. Th- I think he is aware of us, so he does have thoughts about us. I just don't know if he's moved by us. All of his actions are done antecedent to us existing, so he's not moved by us to do. Well, so, so I guess two theories there. So one is like,
2: um, well, so so one is that we do. We do. I mean, the way the way Christians tend to talk, right, is that this miracle occurred in my life for me. Right. So like I didn't have any money and I received a check in the mail and God kind of was involved in that. And so that would seem like he is, you know, at least in ordinary parlance, he's moved to act. I don't, I don't know how to make sense of that kind of view, I mean, especially, you know, God's incarnation, like Jesus reached down and pulled up Peter. Right. That was God doing that. And that's, that's, that seems like, you know, it moved to act And, and, but then, you know, the kind of the other side of this is just, um, I I take aseity to to be more than just not God isn't moved to act, but also like God isn't nothing about God is determined by creatures because that would, that would create contingency in God. And so God's having a belief about me, even if he doesn't act on it, uh, that would be a contingent part of God, that content in God's mind would be contingent because he could have chosen not to create me. And if it's not contingent, then it seems like God has these same beliefs and desires about non-existent objects that he chose not to create. And then I just, I'm, I don't know in what sense I'm different than non-existent objects. So, yeah, it just seems like, one, I think our society, at least on the orthodox conception, does have to be stronger than just God isn't moved by creations or, or by his creation or isn't, isn't dependent for, like, on for his existence, but also that nothing about God is determined by creation. And that then I think is what, that's what was worrying me about the idea of potentiality. And then also it does seem like at least ordinarily Christians talk about God being moved to act on our behalf, right? That's kind of his involvement, his providence, his involvement in saving us or just in kind of personally helping us in our lives. That seems to involve God responding. Sorry. And so I know we're going on. So I guess, Caleb, you have the last word on this, then we can move on. I I apologize. We've gone on longer than we should have.
1: So I don't think God's features are determined. But if you're saying like, well, is his the content that God knows about, like he knows about contingent events and such yeah, I just don't think those are features of God. Those are just things, part of God's cognitive processes. He's aware of stuff, but he's not made of that content. He's just, so his act of intelligence, his act of knowing that's God, but the contingent, so I make that distinction between the contingent content that God knows about, that's not God. So he can he can be aware of this contingent content without his um, substance being dependent upon these things. Like he's not, his very, his properties are not, in my view, are not then reliant upon other beings even though he is aware now i do think there is an interesting worry about like god responding to prayers and such so i kind of want to say because god is timeless he's doing everything at once he's just willing the good um, within the universe and that's going to bring about miracles and responses to prayers but all of that activity is prior to the actual events taking place so it's causally prior so in some sense He's not responding under this view. He's not responding to actions. He is bringing about events within the world, but there's a kind of like um, synergistic activity involved. It's not like he's aware of the prayer and now he's responding to the prayer. Rather, he's just bringing about his providential plan, which is in effect responding to the prayers. But that's, I don't know if that totally makes sense because it it is a little bit. So it's like his action is um, causally prior to the events and he's. He's, he's responding, he's bringing it about events, but he's not like, it's not like he's um, being informed on the events and then responding. I don't know if that totally helped. But.
0: I, I almost wonder if we could reach a point of agreement, because it seems like, Caleb, you might grant that some of the stricter, less moderate theists would fall prey to Joseph's arguments, like, and you're sort of defending a more moderate conception, in some sense of like, essayity and simplicity.
1: Right, yeah, so yeah, I'm willing to, yeah, I take a more moderate position on those, So some people might say I don't really hold to them. like I mean, I want to say I do because I don't want to say like God it's being is like made of parts, and I don't want to say like he he has like these fluctuating parts that are somehow like dependent upon creatures. and if like that seems like those types of concerns seem to be like what some classical a lot of classical theists like that's their concern, but a lot of times I think that their concerns are kind of overblown because it's like, well, it's not totally clear that all of that follows. Like, it's not like if the concern was to avoid God being made up of parts, but it's not clear that like God having contingent knowledge means he's made up of a part, then it's like, I don't really look at it as a worry anymore. Now, somebody might say, well, that's no longer divine simplicity. I'd be like, well, okay. I'm just worried about like, what's the most plausible view in my mind? And I'll I'll call it simplicity because it seems simple to me.
0: <laughs> well, I think we can count that as progress then. So um something I've surprised we haven't talked more about is the problem of evil um because when you talk about a limited god it seems like a lot of people think that's like the only reason you might end up a sort, of, a sort of proponent of limited or finitist conceptions of god and i believe Caleb talked about it more than Joseph um just talking about like that pragmatic argument or you know just wondering like could a limited god plausibly end in remedy suffering but yeah, I wanted to hear if that's any kind of motivation for you, Joseph, because I know that it is it is a central motivation for Philip Goff, for example, um, when he talks about a limited conception of God. Yeah, so I guess I just wanted to hear both your thoughts on um if the limited God fares better with respect to the problem of evil and you know, how much better. I think I think
2: Caleb's right that so yeah, okay. So you're you're advocating for the idea that on the one hand, it looks like a limited God is going to do a better job of explaining <clears throat> suffering, because if you're unlimited, right, you, it seems like that just the problem of evil is kind of motivated by the super unlimited omnipotent, of God, you've got the inconsistent triad, right? Omnipotence, omniscience. Sorry, omnipotence, omnipotence, and and uh, evil. And like the more <laughs> rah rah you go on omnipotence, the harder it looks like it is going to be to explain why God hasn't done away with evil, right? So. Yeah, on the one hand, that looks like an advantage for the limited, the advocate of limited God. I think Caleb's right that that, that, that then the further you go in the limited direction, the more you're going to worry about, is God sufficient to do what he set out to do, right? So like you framed it as a pragmatic argument, Caleb, but obviously I think you can turn this into just a a non-straightforward epistemic kind of argument, right? Where you say, we've got reason to believe that God is going to save us, right? So like in scripture, he says he's sufficient to save us. Uh, and if you believe that, and you think that's inconsistent with a really limited God, well, then you have reason not to believe the limited God, right? So it can be pragmatic as in, insofar as like it's a, it's a mo- it's a motivation, like almost like a yeah a bit of pragmatic motivation. But I think it's also it can just be an argument that, well, we we believe that God can save us, and that type of God wouldn't be enough. So you know, is that kind of God enough? Well, I, I so I guess to answer you, Emerson, is this a motivation for me? Not particularly, just insofar as this is not something I think about. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to do with evil in terms of like a really worked out theodicy. So I'm, I'm, I'm obviously committed on the one hand to saying there is evil in the world, and another to say that God is gonna overcome it, and that somehow God and that evil are, are compatible. And I think li- the God's limitedness is a resource that I can draw on. God can't do all kinds of things that he would be able to do on the Orthodox conception. It's much easier for the Latter-day Saint to say that God's limited in various ways and still call him omnipotent, because we're used to doing it, right? Lots of lots of theists, and like, I think Caleb's obviously not like this, but would say like, you know, Logical limits aren't even limits. It's just it doesn't make sense. It's not a thing even to, to 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 say that God can't do because they're not things at all. And so that's you know there are no limits on what God can do. And Caleb's obviously like open to even saying, well maybe they're just metaphysical limits or whatever. And so you know that kind of attitude I think makes it easy. Latter like, it didn't have that kind of attitude. It makes it easy to say things like, yeah, there's there's lots of things God can't do, and so it's it's that's part of why evil exists. And so yes, and that, I think that is like kind of kind of evidence. It can it can be a motivation. It just happens to be motivation for me. Particularly, but I think yes, there are resources here, and 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 then the project is to work out how that doesn't conflict with God saying He can save us. And so, I I, I, so Caleb, I know you you had this in your opening statement. I don't know that you said anything specific enough for me to feel a need to respond to it. Like I think if you have particular points, you know, God uh, can't save us because He can't. I don't know. Yeah, be involved in our lives in a certain way or something because He's limited. Uh, So if you have like kind of more specific challenges although i i know that's tough because i haven't given a specific view but then yeah then maybe we can we can work through that but yeah so i think yes i think you're right that that's the problem is you have to work out how god can save or or you know have his providence work if he's limited um so maybe we can
1: yeah well i guess the worry in my mind would be like if if it depends upon how somebody puts it forward if somebody's saying like well god can't stop suffering because he's he's just not powerful enough to then i would say well then how can we rely upon that being to bring about you know heavenly afterlife for us or paradise or whatever and I'm, I'm not saying somebody couldn't work it out but if somebody's then going to say well there there are these barriers and he has to like work around them i'm open to that type of view because the theodicy that you know i defend does kind of have that view i just want to say that it's more of a metaphysical limit it's not like that God isn't all powerful it's rather there are these metaphysical quasi-logical again however you want to cash it out but these sort of barriers about free will and such and you know causality and such. But then I would say, well, the unlimited conception can have that view too. So it just kind of it depends upon what motivates. If somebody's saying like, well, the limited conception's better because God just can't stop suffering, then I would be like, well, that just seems to go too far. But if that's not your view necessarily, then then yeah, this concern may not apply. But then I would say that maybe our views aren't that far apart about about omnipotence. Yeah.
2: No, actually, I think I think I suspect that I'm going to end up closer to the kind of view you're talking about than the, what Emma is saying. So because because I think most scientists by far and this is probably what i'm tempted to say as well you point to a particular instance of suffering you know the classic you know baby drowning or something could god step in and stop that in terms of power it seems like most artists can say absolutely of course he could right and so so like that in that sense i think maybe that's why part of why i don't see this as being a super big draw limited god as being as being explained uh, suffering as being a big draw for the limited God view, because I do think that probably that God has the power. Cause even if God's just like a superhuman, well, Superman can save the baby, right? Uh, and so and so may, maybe there are limits in terms of like, God can't be in two places at once. And so if there are any two instances of suffering sides of the world, maybe God couldn't do that. But I think again, a lot of saints are going to say, no, of course he could. Not sure how that works exactly because he's embodied, but he could, maybe that's by sending angels to do it or something, right? Um, and so if God's got, you know, Ten billion angels, he can have one guarding each person, and they, he could stop. Right, so, so yeah, so uh, and then plenty for animals too, or something. Right, so yeah, so okay, so maybe again, maybe maybe that's so. So then I think Caleb and I are going to end up wanting to say similar things in a theodicy, as opposed to my appealing to things he can't appeal to, like God just physically couldn't stop this particular evil from occurring. On the other hand, you know, I think it's easier to say things like because God can't do. The logically possible, but maybe metaphysically impossible, like implanting me virtues artificially, and those count as virtues because maybe that that doesn't that doesn't seem quite like logically impossible, but maybe metaphysically. So if you're like really big on arm and updates, you're gonna say. You know, it's the challenge, one of the challenges is going to be, why couldn't God just make heaven right now? Why couldn't he put it virtues in me that make me virtuous so I should be in heaven? Like, I think it's easier to answer those kinds of objections if you think that God can only do the physically possible. Not even clear what that looks like when you have this super limited embodied God. So that's maybe an advantage. But I think that's as far as I think the advantages go uh, for the Latter-day Saint who, who is still pushing omnipotence as far as they can. God can do things like stop a particular instance of evil. He just, there's, uh, in terms of power, but there's some other... Yeah, some other reason that he can't. And that's gonna be just probably a similar answer to what Caleb's gonna give in terms of theodicy. Well,
0: I feel like um, you know, someone who's pushing the problem of evil might be less concerned with like intervening in specific instances of suffering, you know, as much as like just setting up a different causal web in the first place. Yeah, like, okay. I yeah. feel like that's yeah. where limitations might have more of an advantage. If you're talking about like, can God Um, Like, can uh, a limited God bring about, like, what young Earth creationists envision? Like, could he have just created things in their current form? Or did he have to use evolution by natural selection? Because such a horrible process that, you know, you kind of wonder, like, okay, there have been hundreds of millions of years of predation and carnivory and starvation and, you know, really horrible things. And he could have just created human beings, like, in their current form. And, you know, obviously could have set up a different causal web where, people are less inclined to do evil. You know, people are just less evil. (laughs) And, you know, maybe they're not like uh, carnivores or something like that, or we don't need to, you know, eat each other to survive and that kind of thing. Like, it's sort of more about setting up a different causal web to begin with
2: yeah no that, i guess that's good that's, that's, that's a, maybe a more general way of putting my my point about like virtues like good could god have just kind of totally set things up differently and one of the ways he could have done that is by just making heaven now right giving us virtues in artificially and then i guess you're right the other you know, the other other worries about like could god have just avoided evolution altogether because you're right that that's like a strong version of the argument from evil the kind of languishing of animals and so you know you're right that that's 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 an advantage i guess that i would happily endorse well do you think that your,
0: so you don't think that your god could like have brought about what ken ham thinks is the case
2: right uh, yeah so no right it seems like probably not because um if you've got like if he's constrained by physical possibility i think especially because he's not creating ex nihilo like when you create ex nihilo that's that's part of why i said the thing about artificially implanting virtues like like, if you could just create angels everyone is angels and if they're free which many people want to say but also like can't sin i mean obviously like the medieval said like there was one time they could sin and they didn't after that because they're full angels but no you're right that like it seems like Rejecting creation ex nihilo was a really big step in the direction of being able to say, no, God couldn't have created young Earth. Evolution is somehow necessary. So, like God, so you know, I, I, I haven't said this yet, but for Latter Day Saints, is kind of a pre-existence where we existed in somehow almost like a disembodied state, but that's still material. We didn't have bodies like this, and so God had to make bodies for us to enter. And maybe evolution is the only way God can do that, right? He has to. He can set up some initial conditions. And and and, and I think some Latter Day Saints are going to say. I don't like that. I think God could have made, and some, obviously, some agree with Ken Ham, but um, some are going to say, no, God could have done that. But I think you're right that it's much easier for the Latter day Saint to have available um, to them the idea that evolution was unavoidable, and therefore the language of animals over millions of years was unavoidable. So yes, okay, you're right. that I, I think I understated the case for Latter states. Thank you for stepping in as a crypto, crypto Mormon. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <on> <laughs> this, this
0: is why I'm on the LDS payroll. But um, <laughs> no, I mean, I think with like Philip Goff and with other people who are maybe coming like me who are coming from a more secular perspective, um, some of the stuff that you guys were saying about, um, you know, being able to remedy evil or like, you know, John Buck has mentioned to me, like oh well how could you be confident that god could save everyone like a limited god could save everyone in the end and it's like those just are those concerns are less likely to occur to me i guess because i'm not coming at it from a theistic perspective i'm more just yeah that makes sense but before i hand it over to caleb with respect to the problem of evil i want to challenge your position joseph because it seems like you know god has these limitations and like okay well Caleb's model of God could have brought about, you know, the Garden of Eden as envisioned by uh, myself when I was 15, um, you know, or Ken Ham or someone. But, you know, the Mormon God couldn't have done that. Um, But then you start wondering about traditional parts of Christianity, like miracles and inspiration and revelation and religious experiences it's you know it's easy to see how caleb's model of god could you know inspire a book or you know cause revelations or perform miracles or be the source of religious experience but if we're talking about a limited god it's a lot less obvious how how god could be the cause of religious experiences or inspire books or or give revelations so I, i've heard you say before that you're uh christian because of religious experience roughly you know more so than you know natural theological arguments yeah so you know while i'm sympathetic to parts of your opening case where you're like well could a christian really believe in this kind of unlimited god if it's it's not recognizably personal and it's not recognizably loving well how could a christian believe in a limited god you know who you know is so limited that he can't do these things but he he still can do revelations and and miracles and uh you know bring about religious experiences so how does that work for you exactly yeah i mean maybe i'm
2: not clear on exactly what the problem is so like if god is just a really you know like like a, a beefed up human being roughly right so like human but uh much more powerful much more knowledgeable and wise all these things well certainly that that being could communicate with me so let's say face to face speaks to me that's one way revelation could take place one way it has in fact taken place historically i'm not saying to And so then is there some in principle objection to the idea of God speaking in people's minds instead of physically out loud? That doesn't seem to be something that's like challenged by the notion of God being limited. And that seems like it's roughly enough revelation. So maybe God is in some, on some distant planet. That's kind of sometimes a caricature of LDS view, but I think some certainly believe that. And so, you know, across a distance, maybe there's problems with like, uh, you know, travel faster than the speed of light. Maybe there's something kind of funny there. You have to either say that God can communicate faster than the speed of light, or he like plans in advance to send a message. But in terms of like, it's not making any sense to think of God speaking in someone's mind. That doesn't seem to be ruled out by a limited God. And that seems like roughly, I, mean, I'm not, I, I don't have any idea what the actual mechanics are, but it seems like as, as far as like an account that gives you enough resources to account for revelation and the inspiration of scripture. That seems like roughly that would be it, right? And even if it means that God often has to send an angel to physically talk to someone, that too seems to be enough for revelation in some form. Maybe it doesn't account for all historical instances of it, right? Obviously, we don't think that all scripture was inspired by an angel speaking to someone. But I mean, so I think one thing you 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 have available to you to say as an, on the unlimited view, although I think it's not a plausible thing to say, is something like. God could give you a self-verifying experience that's indubitable, right? So God gives you the experience, you couldn't deny it. You now rationally are forced to believe in God or something, right? Uh and I think that's just not available. I think in some Latin actually do think that's how revelation works. I think that doesn't make sense. I mean, epistemically, I just don't, I don't I don't think any experience I've ever had or any experience, experience I've had described to me by someone who's claimed to have a religious experience sounds like something self-verifying. They sound like things that can be doubted and maybe they shouldn't be. Maybe it's rational for you to believe in them, but I don't think it's like indubitable, certain in the same way that like the cogito is or something, right? And so like maybe that's a difference. I don't think it makes really any sense on the latter, the saint exception to say that these are indubitable. I think these are things, I think actually like part of like faith is like volitional commitment that requires room for doubt and that sort of thing. So maybe that's the difference, but I think even even on the, on the unlimited conception, it, it's kind of weird to talk of that like self-verifying experience. Um, but that's one thing that I think it's at least more plausible to say on the unlimited model.
0: Um, okay, so we just covered a lot there. Uh, Caleb, do you have anything that you want to touch on with respect to the problem of evil or, or any of the other topics that we just covered?
1: No, not necessarily because, yeah, I mean, I think the concern is like a lot of times when people are putting forth like a response to the problem of evil and it's like, oh, well, God can't stop suffering because he's just not powerful enough. That seems to create some concerns that, and yeah, I mean, like if somebody's an atheist and they're going to say, well, that's not a concern for them. So, yeah, it's a theological concern, though, if somebody's committed to the view that God is going to be able to eventually end suffering, it becomes unclear how he's going to do that if he, he couldn't prevent it so far so it seems like a theist needs to either appeal to skeptical theism or a theodicy and you know and joseph and i'm seems like we're kind of in agreement that like yeah there needs to be some kind of theodicy now he might now in terms of like the garden of eden question for me like that's kind of tricky because like yeah i think god has the power to have brought about a garden of eden situation but i do think you know you know there's a theodicy for why he didn't and you know emerson and i've discussed that that link before and you know somebody may not find my theodicy plausible or not and like that's a totally separate or maybe i can get into it but it's a long discussion so i want to say like yeah there's like kind of a logical maybe metaphysical reason why god didn't create the garden of eden situation and um, i want to say that's not a limit in god's power or goodness or anything but it's just like a logical maybe metaphysical limitation Um, but i would still say god is unlimited within that paradigm.
0: I just want to flag one more thing on the problem of evil, just for those in the audience who might find that kind of uh, progression really convincing. Like, oh well, you know, I'm kind of persuaded by some, you know, natural theology, and I think God exists. But then I look at the problem of evil, and then I place limitations on God, and to me that satisfies. You know, so there are some people who go through that, and they they think it's okay. Just one thing I wanted to say in defense of that. Um, wanted to appeal to something richard swinburne says that nobody ever checks up on and i'm not going to do it so i'll just repeat it as if it's a fact so apparently we assumed the speed of light was infinite um, before we had any information to the contrary because that was like the simplest value like you know we didn't place any arbitrary limits on the speed of light we just thought yeah it's infinite but then we got some experimental evidence to the contrary um you know papering over a lot of a lot of things here but you know we came to believe that oh the speed of light isn't infinite it's c you know whatever that value is and then we didn't just sit around thinking well hang on how do we come up with like interesting ways to make it so the speed of light is still infinite but um you know we can account for this data that we've collected so I feel like that's a pretty normal way for like inquiry into the nature of things to go like you might have some argument for why you know some good reason for thinking things are a certain way but then you get some evidence to the contrary and then you update your model you know so i feel like that's a totally legitimate thing for theists to do as well if they're persuaded by that line of reasoning you know which they may not be but if you think the problem of evil is you know a serious issue that can be solved by placing some limitations on god's power then, you know, there's a precedent for that. That's a pretty standard way of reasoning about things, you know. Um, I can't remember why Swinburne brings up the speed of light thing, but that's the lesson I drew from it. I have a feeling that's not the lesson that I was supposed to draw from it, but um, that's the one that I took from it.
1: Yeah, I mean, my recollection is like, you know, obviously he's a big proponent of simplicity and like arguing God's the simplest explanation for things. So I think he's like, at least my understanding is he's, he's kind of making a case for like why we should favor simplicity and but yeah like I think if like I think yeah there are good reasons that you know want to favor the view that God is unlimited at least for pious reasons we don't want to like denigrate God but but if somebody can have you know reasons like I mean somebody might think I think like going back to C.S. Lewis I think he has a quote where it's like you know maybe some like pious uninformed person might think it's blasphemous to say God couldn't you know make make a square circle but it's like yeah but come on like that's just absurd so like if somebody can make a good case why god would be limited in, in some regards then then you know that could be good motivation and so i think that's where it's it is kind of case by case but so yeah it just depends upon what principles you're working with and what you find plausible
0: so um i think we will transition now to audience questions from twitter um I told people we'd be doing this and I, I found a few good questions and this one relates to what we were just talking about. Um, this is from Josh Rasmussen. he asks why if God is limited does God have those limits rather than slightly different ones for example being a meter bigger or having one more power so um yeah I mean this sort of relates to the speed of light thing like you know you start off with this you know, I mean, I used to not like this argument at all. The kind of like arbitrary limits objection. Um, I just used to not get why that would be like a a real consideration. And just over time, as I've thought about it, I'm like, no, I, I kind of see that. Like, you don't want to place arbitrary limits on things. And but yeah, at first I used to think like, I don't know why infinity or zero would be like the simplest values. You know, like if you before we knew about like the mass of stars or something, it's like, well, the simplest we can say for sure is either that it has infinite mass or zero mass. It's like, well, first of all, I'm not sure those are the simplest values. And um, second of all, they're definitely not the most plausible. But I think when it comes to something that's foundational, you know, and Caleb, you were talking about this, you know, in your opening. When it comes to something that's like truly fundamental and foundational, then I feel like this argument from arbitrary limits, you know, it actually makes a lot of sense Um, because if it's fundamental or foundational, then like what is there outside of it that is, uh, you know, causing these limits or more to Josh's question, you know, if God's limited, why does God have those limits (laughs) instead of like slightly different limits, you know, and he says being a meter bigger or having one more power. So Joseph, what do you think about that?
2: Yeah. This is one of those really tricky cases where I like Josh's work a lot, but we approach philosophy so radically differently that I think virtually nothing I can say is going to sound satisfying to him because I'm in in some ways I'm just rejecting the question. In other ways the way I think about God and reality is so different that it's not even going to really engage with the way that he thinks about God and reality. So again, that's really, it's really tough because Josh is smart, but I, again, I just reject like fundamentally the way he approaches philosophy and the question of god and so it's yeah i mean so like i think mean, we've already touched on some of the ways in which i think why does god have those limits as opposed to others? i mean so like i gave arguments and this is really to what you said emerson about the speed of light thing god we have certain facts about god like that or the allegedly right things that we think we know about god god loves us god thinks about us um god's a person and those look incompatible with certain types certain ways of being unlimited so i, I think I, I know that god's personal and therefore i think i know that he can't be Timeless and immutable in our say, because I don't know what to, I don't know how to make sense of the idea of even being personal, given those ways of being unlimited. And so, if it's right, and I have good reason to believe that God is personal, which I, think I take myself to have, then I think I have to get rid of those limits, right? So that, that's one way of saying that that's why God has those limits and not others, right? That's the only way to make sense of certain features of God that I think I know that He has. Um, I think I I suspect that some ways in which. Josh is gonna to want to say God is unlimited, I'm gonna think don't make any sense kind of in themselves. Um, maybe not even really invoking ideas of God, uh, like trying to explain features of God that that I think I know he has. So like the idea of we didn't want really to get into this today, but the idea of like God grounding causal relations or something, that seems to rely on a notion of causality that I think is confused and therefore that doesn't need explanation. In the way that like that argument is meant to explain, and so so I, I just think it doesn't make really sense to say that God's unlimited or foundational because of that fact or something. So that, so that there's going to be ways I'm going to push back that. I mean so yeah. So, but and, and then I think the the question still can be pressing despite the fact that we approach. And again, I, like I don't I don't I'm, I think Josh is like super big on a priori arguments. and I'm not at all. Uh, and so yeah, like I think I think Emerson, you made a good point insofar as the kind of God that Caleb is positing, this question makes sense. And for the kind of God that I'm positing, I'm not sure that it does, because my, the type of God I'm positing isn't like foundational to reality in the way that like a Thomist or just a classical theist God is. I don't think God explains the nature of causation. I mean, again, maybe I think that's not even a, a, a coherent notion or a, a good, clear notion. But I think God is like another being in the universe in exactly the same sense that I'm a being in the universe. Obviously, he's a different type of being, but I don't, you know, it's, this is in, the, in this way, maybe my view is closer to the naturalist concept of the world than one on which. Uh, I mean, even someone like Gray, Gray Moppy, I think, is someone who's actually got a view of the world closer to what Josh and, and Caleb are going to advocate. But then, like, kind of you know, just your, your bog-standard <laughs> naturalist philosopher is maybe something close to what I'm going to advocate. And so just that conception of reality, the nature of, like, metaphysical questions, it's going to be unclear that this is a good question to ask when you have that kind of overarching worldview. But I think then there, then there are still ways in which Josh's question can be pressing, like, why is it God one meter taller? <laughs> If I think God has a body, right? And yeah, I mean, I, 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 there are different things to be said there. Maybe God has had that body for an infinite amount of time. And then the question doesn't arise. Some people are going to say, no, you still need an explanation for that infinite chain. Then you've got people who are going to say, no, that's fallacy of composition, you know, just because each stage needs an explanation, it has an explanation the prior stage. You don't need an explanation for the whole thing, right? Um, that's one way of going. Another way, if you if you accept the infinite regress model of, for Latter-day Saints, you know, you could say, I don't know, something like evolution occurred for gods or something. So, I mean, there's different ways of going here, but I think I'm not going to give some principled way of explaining all the limits as God has. I'm going to have lots of different ways of diffusing different worries about the limits on God, uh, the kinds of worries that Josh is going to have. Right? Sometimes I'm going to say, here's a fact about God that is incompatible with certain kinds of limits, certain kinds of limits don't make sense as being like that notion of unlimitedness doesn't make sense. And other times I might have to give some particular answer. So it, it's a good question, but it's one that I think is just uh, reflective of, a, of an approach to philosophy that, and, and a, the question of God that are accepted. It. So it's hard for me to engage. I'd love to talk to Josh about some of some stuff sometime because then we do have like just really radically different, even maybe more. I think I think Caleb, you and I agree more than perhaps Josh and I would. So. Sorry, that was very long winded, but it's because I'm worried that Josh is going to think I'm stupid for being able to answer, answer, <laughs> not answer this question in a satisfactory way.
0: <laughs> I doubt he thinks that. But I, I think that um, it's just interesting because this is just yet another example of Mormons sounding like atheists, basically, <laughs> Like, um, especially with the, you know, I mean, it kind of occurred to me while you were talking that like you sound a little bit like the atheists who say, Oh, God's attributes are just contradictory or unintelligible in some sense, like at least not certain conceptions of God. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is so like to say that God is embodied, that is just so radically different from positing God as this kind of necessary being, you know, this metaphysical necessity. Being itself, of right. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. It, well, I don't even know what that means, but it's <laughs> like, I mean, a lot of Thomas stuff is anyway, I, I won't go into that, but <laughs> It's just like, um, uh, what is foundational to reality on your view, or is that like not a good question on your view?
2: Yeah, but I think I think that's the sort of thing. I mean, so like, so personally, I'm inclined to say that's the sort of thing that's not a good question, and you know, and, and here, like, I, I'm, I, this is partly because I'm like really big, I'm, I'm a, I'm a disciple of Hilary Putnam, who I think doesn't like those kinds of metaphysics. Sometimes under the influence of Quine and Carnap, sometimes under the, under the influence of Wittgenstein, right? Like, I think a certain approach. I think, I think you look at someone like Jonathan Schaffer, I think he's doing metaphysics in a way that's really amenable to this kind of way of thinking about the world that that Orthodox Christian is thinking about the world in, right It's just like grounding as a thing and, I, and that's I don't like that kind of metaphysics and so it, I, I, but that maybe that's maybe that's incidental I think you could be really big on metaphysics and be a latter-day saint. I happen to think that my way approach to philosophy of metaphysics, Actually, is more amenable to the likely same conception of God, but I think they're not—they're not incompatible. But just for me, kind of, not, what grounds reality? I think is a is a is not a good question. Actually, part of my again, I, I, John Austin as well. I follow. I like John Austin a lot. Obviously, he's not a systematic philosopher, but I think he has things like real. Like, what are you talking about, real? You know, like a real duck as opposed to a decoy duck. I know what that means. I know what it means for like the world to be real. Right. So I have worries like that too. Yeah. You
0: know? So. Uh, just to be clear uh you do believe in like an eternal universe um and you think that that potentially gets around some of these concerns about um you know that would be raised by people who defend contingency arguments
2: yeah i, I do i do think that the past is infinite and i think that at le- at, at the very least it pres- provides resources for getting somewhere around some of the worries like i said maybe god had his body infinitely into the past and therefore you don't need an explanation or something i don't i don't that's probably not a good answer maybe not one i would accept but i think it's, it's it provides a resource uh, and i am again committed to the infinite past so, yeah
0: well i have a question for both of you on that um would it be possible for someone to accept stage one of a contingency argument to so sort of go along with what caleb was saying in his opening statement um but then just reject the inference to stage two And then still buy into like a more limited conception of god so like you somehow end up splitting the difference where it's like no i I, you know i sort of side more with oppi than i would with joseph but uh you know i still buy into this like embodied limited version of god but i still think that you know there's this metaphysical necessity at the foundation of reality i just reject the stage two inferences so i just don't think that that's that's not what we mean by god and it's not divine but there there is still you know a metaphysical necessity do you think that's like a possible position someone could stake out Is a question for both of you
2: so i if maybe i can start i think Yes, totally. Um, whatever you say about God, I'll say that about the universe, right? So sure, like, yeah, just say the universe is, or something about the universe is a necessary foundation. And then on top of that, maybe not even a priori, we get a limited God that we add in. Like, I think that's totally plausible. I happen to to not even want to do the stage one of the contingency, contingency arguments, but I think that's certainly compatible with Latter-day Saint Conception broadly and with the idea of a limited God. Uh, but I'm interested to hear what you think, Caleb, if you agree with that.
1: No, I mean, it's coherent. I mean, somebody could accept one aspect of an argument and then not accept the other. I mean, a lot of times I'll see people make this claim like, well, stage one is like pretty strong, but like stage two needs like more work and like things like that. I don't really hold that view. Like, I think stage two and stage one are both equally strong. Like, I think they're both very controversial. I don't, I'm not going to be like, oh, somebody's irrational if they reject this, but like, I, I mean, I recognize like the arguments for a necessary foundation are, are controversial, but I find them intuitively plausible. And I find the arguments that a necessary foundation would be unlimited and that being unlimited would entail properties. Like I find that very intuitive, just equally intuitively plausible. But I mean, where somebody comes down on something is going to you know, depend on their intuitions and such. But I find them both like equally compelling to my mind
0: so this next question comes from john buck he asks what sorts of auxiliary hypotheses could be added to god in order to ensure he'd be powerful enough to account for the data but not all powerful
2: yeah so i mean i guess we got into this a bit so i i I suspect the biggest challenge to any limited conception of gods being able to save uh arises most prominently in cases where you think where you want to press the limits of God so hard that you say things like he couldn't have saved that baby that drowned. He didn't have the power through that. So then suddenly, you know, like certainly I don't have the power to save people. It's clear that I couldn't, I don't, I don't even even know what that would look like for me to do that. Right. Um, And so like, yeah, when you limit power in that direction, it's like, well, what can God even do? But I think when Emerson saved my view earlier by pointing out that it's really about not being able to set up totally different, frameworks for the world. Well, then you can still allow that God has lots and lots of power within the framework. And so let's say all it takes, or roughly, well, OK, part of what it takes to save people is to send a sinless being to take on the sins of the world and and make it possible for people to repent and, and return to God, something like that, right? That's kind of a standard Christian exception. Saints so, hold that. Well, that, then you just need the powers involved in that. So you need to be able to send someone who's sinless the power to be sinless. Uh, and the power to die on behalf of people, and maybe that's some kind of metaphysical thing. It's not clear what that exactly means, but that looks like it's totally compatible with a limited god. Uh, you know, specifically a limited god of the kind that can't set up a wholly different framework you know ex nihilo so uh, I, I and maybe you also think that like resurrection is part of this you have to have resur- god has to, be able to have the power to resurrect so you still have a very powerful god but it looks like yeah uh, uh, you're going to look at the, the you know Cri- christian scripture Latter-day saint scripture and say well i just need to explain these particular features of what kind of the story of salvation is uh, and then anything outside that is kind of fair game for putting limits in order to explain evil in the world so yeah to explain to answer john's question kind of directly yeah it looks like identify what's required for salvation something like an atonement sending christ to die for our sins god has those powers and then anything else that would be helpful for me to explain evil by limiting god in that regard maybe i can do that right um so i think yeah the types of uh, auxiliary hypotheses i would look at are the, particularly the ones related to the way we, it looks like salvation actually works
0: right I, I think a way of rephrasing john's question is if god is limited what is limiting him
2: oh did i like totally misunderstand the question is that what happened
0: <laughs> no no i i just wanted to make sure that i mean i think you answered the question but i'm saying like maybe what he's getting at is also something like this
2: yeah um the i think that that suggests an approach to limits of the kind that i take it josh would have and then i take Caleb to be having. And that was kind of what I flagged very early on when I said something like, I don't want to think of limits as this super metaphysical thing. I don't think laws of logic are a thing out there that limits God, right? Like I think what it is for something to have a certain character almost entails for it to be limited in a way, but limits are just ways of talking about things. So like God is God and he's not me. And that's a limit but like i know it's like i think the kind of when you have the robust unlimited concept of god it's you don't want to say that i'm imposing a limit on god but it's a, i think that's a coherent thing to say that the fact that god's not me is a limit on god but i just i don't want that to be a super metaphysical thing i think it's just what it is for god to be god and what it is for me to be me are different things and so yeah i i don't i don't think i'd want to say that there's always some some thing out in the world limiting things i think the way the word limit works is just uh Some things are something and not something else. Or something, you know, like I I just I think I think I can be pretty linguistic about the notion of limit in such a way that I then don't even want to have to answer the question of what is it that's limiting God? Well, I think like God's character is such that it's one way and not another. And then we can describe that using a limit or something. That's one way I might answer something like that question.
0: I think maybe you know, within the framework we're operating in, we would say that there are a lot of brute facts in your worldview as compared to Caleb's. So I mean do you have like an issue with the notion of a brute fact or do you accept like yeah there are a ton of brute facts in my worldview relative to caleb's
2: well um suddenly we're probably (laughs) like this it sounds like we're going to invoke like the principle of sufficient reason or something and again i think this is an approach to metaphysics that i'm not uh attracted to like i think i think possibly modal claims are context dependent And so it's not just like this kind of one fact of the matter as to whether this thing is contingent or necessary. I I think these are are just not the right way to approach questions of modality. And I don't know, I'm I'm, I'm kind of soft on this. I'm I'm open to, if I'm open to anything in metaphysics with a capital M, it's kind of modal questions. I'm quite sympathetic to kind of essentialism and sort of thing. But I do think... So, okay, so for instance, so like, you know, you think you say something like water is necessarily H2O, that looks like it's an essentialist claim, like it's essential to water that it be H2O. I'm actually quite attracted to, to, so that's attributed to kind of Putnam and Kripke. Putnam's later view, and I think maybe this is latent in his early view. He says things like, according to a population biologist, it's essential to a dog that it belonged to a certain population that it belonged to kind of a history. But to a molecular biologist, it might be essential to the dog that it have a certain DNA structure. So he's saying kind of in different contexts relative to different interests of ours, interests in explanation, we're going to say different things are essential to the dog. But they're not metaphysical claims with a capital M because in different contexts, we're actually saying different things that the population biologist might say, so he, one example he gives is like, you clone a dog. The population might, the biologist might say that's not a dog, whereas the, the molecular biologist might say it is a dog. And that's because it's relative to different kinds of interests, but they're objective given those interests. And they're also, he says, kind of bound up with rationality, not just any fact about God is as a plausible candidate for being essential to it, the way to wash its hair, isn't, you know, like what shampoo to use, isn't a good candidate for an essence. So maybe there's like a range of essences, but that means there's a range of modal facts and the modal facts are going to change based on context, based on our interests. And so that, that's what I mean when I say that these modal facts can be context dependent. And so then when when you when, once you've gone down that dark path, <laughs> like I think you just kind of give up on context-free, what are the truth conditions for this modal claim, right? Like, is it contingent or necessary? Is it a brute fact? Start to look like dubious questions once you've got on this route. And so that's why I'm, I'm hesitant to say like, yes, I accept brute facts. I think certainly on, on like, I, like you said, on the kind of view that you, you, that you guys might advocate, it looks like I have all kinds of brute facts in my system, but I just, I'm not sure that I like that the view of modality that leads one to say that it's I don't think that's part of the way I want to think about the world. If that makes sense so again a really unsatisfying like refusing to answer the question as opposed to like giving a nice answer i really i apologize
0: i mean i think by some metrics you might be more of a naturalist than me (laughs) like literally (laughs) but we're right (laughs) (laughs) um, so this next question is more directed at caleb it's from alex strasser Um, what motivates omni properties when most arguments for god's existence don't need omni properties to get the result, or generally, which is kind of the whole debate: how are the arguments for and against God's existence affected by limited properties? What do and don't work? So, just to reiterate the first question: what motivates omni properties when most arguments for God's existence don't need omni properties to get the result?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of arguments don't, but you could question like the plausibility. Like, if somebody's gonna make like a fine-tuning argument, for example, they could say like, well yeah, technically God doesn't need to be all powerful, but like, is it really plausible that like, like when we're just thinking about like a being that creates the universe and fine tunes the laws of physics, like, again, like, why would that being be limited in power? So it's more like a conceptual worry, like, yeah, I mean, most of the arguments don't entail omni properties, but so I look at it more as like this conceptual concern, when we're thinking about God in general, like what is limiting God? And now, if you don't think God is like a found necessary foundation to reality, then I think it, it becomes more of an open question if God is limited, or at least more plausibly so. But if you do hold that view of God, I think it is more difficult to make the case that God would be limited. I think it's more plausible he'd be unlimited. So it's not so much that most of the arguments are going for God are going to lead to omniproperties. It's more of like a conceptual analysis of like, well, if you hold this type of view that God is like this necessary foundation to reality, then it seems like you should hold that God is omni. Now, some people, a lot of times their commitment to God being omni is going to be more like a theological conviction, like that that's like the most reverent view to have of God and like and that's a consideration as well. But hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, I want to say one, one thing I really like about your project, Caleb. And this is I guess maybe comes through a little
2: bit more in the document that you've written than in in this debate, but like it's so ambitious you start from this kind of a priori argument and you get so much of the orthodox conception of God. And that's like a really cool idea that you can, you can, because obviously like, you know, like you have someone like William Lane Craig giving the Kalam who then gives some kind of vague considerations in favor of like moving from a first cause to the scripture of God. But you like, you, you you work really hard and give these nice arguments for you know simplicity and omnipotence, all these things just from God's being a necessary foundation. And that's like, that's, I think that's a, like if i were to do national theology that's the kind of thing i would want to be able to do that's that's cool i think that's a really that's a cool project that you have uh to be able to get that far in favor of like kind of rational justifying specifically the christian conception right
1: yeah i appreciate that because like yeah that's how like a lot of the medievals we're working with now obviously some of those arguments can be controversial but most arguments in philosophy are and but yeah like yeah i agree <laughs>
0: So before we wrap up and you know share our final thoughts, um, there's one more question. Uh, this is something that uh, we definitely needed to touch on. So, what makes a limited God worthy of worship? You know, would a limited God be worthy of worship? And I guess uh, we'll start with Caleb.
1: So I mean, part of me wants to like be like, yeah, a limited God's not worthy of worship. So like, I win the debate. But like, um, but I don't really find that argument that like that plausible because. I'm not sure, like, if God, like, if God exists, but he's limited, I'm not sure, it's not obvious that he wouldn't be worthy of worship, like, if he's a morally perfect being who is doing our best for our lives, he was our creator, now, Joseph might have a different view of what it means for God to be our creator, but, I don't know, basically, like, morally perfect being that's out to benefit me, you know, I think that being is, is worthy of worship, like, it's not obvious, like, so, yeah, I don't quite buy... That argument that god would have to be um, unlimited or perfect in every attribute to be worthy of worship i mean i think it makes sense that if he's perfect he's worthy of worship but and if he's unlimited he's worthy of worship but it's not like it's so obvious that like that's required
2: yeah it's, it's this is an interesting one because like for me like i think it's it's very natural for me to say this worship so again you know kind of what 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 might be the argument be here well we analyze the concept of worship and it turns out the only object that's worth worshiping is, yeah this, like super unlimited perfect being I mean and that that by itself seems kind of implausible to me but I, but like for me I think I'm, I'm tempted to say that worshipworthiness is really a kind of moral praise but kind of amped up and then, and then it seems like Caleb and I are just showed on the same page here right like a, perf- a morally perfect being is the kind of being that would be worthy of worship and and so yeah I actually think in some ways that that can lead you to a more limited God so for instance John Pitted. Has a paper arguing that worship worthiness requires effortfulness. So something for something to be worth praising or worshiping, it has to be able to exert effort in pursuit of good ends. So it can't be trivial for God to do good things. And that actually then looks like God has to be. I mean, that's not a super standard conception of uh, John Pitt is an LDS. He's you know he's he's a, he's a Christian, just a kind of general <laughs> non more orthodox Christian is what I mean to say. And yeah, he's saying God has to like exert effort. And that doesn't seem like it's compatible with kind of very standard orthodox conceptions of omnipotence. But he thinks that's what is required for us to praise someone is that they do good things and it requires effort of them. It's not just, you know, a snap of a finger. And so, yeah, I think in some ways worship within us actually might be uh, a point in favor of a limited God. But I I totally agree with Caleb that, yeah, like if, if it's just, if it really just comes down to something like moral perfection, well, that looks like, the limited God can get that. I don't think I'm drawn to the idea that it's kind of like God's being awe inspiring and, and so great as it's to, as to be, you know, beyond imagining is essential to the idea of worship worthiness. I don't know where we would get that from, kind of analyzed out of the concept of worth of worship worthiness.
1: Yeah. I would, I would say to me, like the necessary conditions for worthy of worship would be moral perfection, but also I do think like the greatest or, I don't know how to put it but like the being that's the best for us because like there could be a morally perfect human agent i don't think that that necessarily means that they're worthy of worship like i think jesus is worthy of worship but that's because he's god my view that like so i think it's that being has to have like providential guidance like within your life like it has to be like the, your final end or however you want to put it like at least that, that would be my view so there are certain conditions needed for worthy of worship but i don't know that like omnipotence in and of itself is like a requirement for the show.
0: it is interesting though if you think of worship as like you said joseph moral praise amped up and then you try to apply that to this uh you know god who's like impassable or something and like outside of time and it doesn't require any effort to be the way he is it's yeah it is kind of like could moral praise really apply to you know, the unlimited God. And I guess that depends, you know, it comes down to how you view worship because I know that's not straightforward either. Part of why this is so interesting to me all of a sudden is because Joseph's favorite philosopher, David Chalmers, recently came out with a book where he's talking about like the simulation hypothesis and that sort of thing. And he realizes that if we are in a simulation and there's like a designer of the simulation that technically meets some of the definite, like some like criteria that people have given for God in the past, um, and he said that you know it made him have to reconsider his atheism a little bit because you know a simulator would have some of the properties that people have ascribed to God, and it would have um, it would sort of be the the object of some of the arguments from natural theology that have been uh, that have been presented. If that makes sense, and he realized like when he was thinking about this that he just doesn't think anything could even possibly be worthy of worship. And there's like a deeper reason for his atheism, which is that the idea of worshiping another being just makes no sense to him. And he's like, I don't think anything, like even conceptually could be worthy of worship. Now the, the way I've heard some people critique that is like, well, you just have a funny idea of what it means to worship something. And, and that's why you feel that way. But I, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm thinking about that and I'm also thinking about the perfect being thing. So let me just ask Joseph first, do you accept anything that resembles like a perfect being model of God or, or do you reject the perfect being?
2: I mean, I think it depends on how narrow...
0: Well, sorry, with 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 respect to like moral, like do you think God is morally perfect? So yeah, this is kind of tricky
2: because like if you... So like, again, I think a fairly standard Latter-day Saint conception of God, and this is coming from something Joseph Smith said, is that God at one time was exactly like us. He was a man living on an earth and he was... Uh, sinful like we are but then redeemed and exalted and became a god and so in that sense like like morally perfect if you think that has to be like an eternal thing well then no on that on that reading of Joseph Smith and that the model of God because he wasn't always that way but like maybe now he's morally perfect and so far as he doesn't sin now but it, I think it, 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 even so so you can reject that as of like Satan and think God's always been God to so get rid of that one worry but the other I think another worry then is you might think the moral perfection requires not just that God is uh perfect know free of sin but that he couldn't even possibly sin and maybe that's controversial maybe that's part of the kind of john pitted thing like it requires effortfulness action to be morally perfect as opposed to amoral you have to be capable of sin but choose not to do it and i think that's the latter saint conception but you might think actually that moral perfection requires even more even more strongly god couldn't even possibly sin there's no possible world in which god sins or something and that i think like i don't think I'm not attracted to that view. Lachaise probably could say that, but if you think that's required for moral perfection, then no. I think the more plausible view is that just God doesn't sin, and then on that view, then yes, I accept that God's morally
0: perfect. So, I mean, on the on the moral praise amped up sort of view, I guess Caleb, do you think that's like a, an okay like approximation of worship, or do you think that there's like something else to worship?
1: I mean, I guess it depends. Like, I think if somebody said, like, they found worship to be incoherent, like, somebody could say, like, well, worship just means, like, what do you place as most important in your life? And like that could be a coherent view. Now, I I tend to think, like, worship means more than that. It's, like, a praising, and it's, like, you know, obviously there's, like, a religious connotation and such, and, like, to me, like, it it makes sense, like, somebody would worship God, but I I guess it just depends on how you define the word
0: but you do think moral perfection is, is required. And I mean, I mean, it's not, not all Mormons accept that view anyway, that God like was a man who became God. Am I right about that? Some of them do think he was like eternally God.
2: Yeah. Like Osler, who's kind of our biggest philosopher accepts that Mm -hmm. God was always God. Yeah.
0: Well, I think that view sucks personally, but (laughs) no, anyway.
2: um... No, but I think, sorry, like Caleb, you mentioned earlier the kind of idea that God has to be involved in a lot. I think that's right too, because it's not just, I guess, yeah, maybe I was, I was, wrong if I made it sound like it's just that God has to not sin because it looks like he also has to be kind of magnanimous but you might think it's super irrigation you might just think that would be required of a, of a perfectly good being because it's not just a negative free from sin but also doing lots of good and I think being involved in our lives if if I travel to a distant part of the universe I discover a being that's free from sin I think what you said earlier is right, Caleb. that that wouldn't automatically make that being worthy of worship, right? I think it it does have to mean more than that. At least as a Christian, it seems quite natural to say, no, God has to then have already been involved in our lives, not just free from sin, but also doing lots and lots of good for us and like kind of concerned with creation, that sort of thing sounds plausibly to me. Like if, if if you have in mind deity, when you talk about worship, that sounds right. That something like that is required in addition to sinlessness, kind of, you know, freedom from moral imperfection.
0: Okay, well, I guess I just wanted to open up the floor for any uh, closing thoughts, final thoughts you guys might have. Um, but other than that, I really enjoyed this. Thank you guys for coming on. And um, yeah, definitely check out Dry Apologist channel and LDS Philosophy if you haven't already.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. And, you know, Joseph is much more qualified in philosophy than I am. So yeah, I appreciate having a strong interlocutor here. So
0: I thought you were going to say he's much more qualified than you. So I appreciate that he's here. <laughs> also (laughs) (laughs) no i
1: appreciate coming on yeah so this was a good dialogue no i appreciate you both too this has been a lot of fun
2: and you've uh, you've both left me with a lot of things to think about which is like great that's what i want to get out of these things so this was really this was really cool thank you both
0: all right well thank you all for watching and uh don't forget to subscribe to my channel and uh yeah all right talk to you guys next time